All right, just making sure. Yes, we are live. Um, <clears throat> welcome to the live stream. This is going to be a new believers question and answer thing. I'm taking your questions right now from the live chat. You can actually start loading them now. And as always, as is tradition on the Q&A videos in my, uh, in my ministry or on my YouTube channel, um, you can go to the timestamps. Once this video is done being recorded, we'll put timestamps down below in the video description as well as in the first comment, a pinned comment for mobile users. So you could just go straight to the question you want, which is how you could skip ahead right now because I'm about to give you some announcements and some blah, blah, blah stuff that a lot of people, to be honest, probably not interested in, but I have some things I want to share. And um, as I get into that, you can skip right past it and it won't hurt my feelings at all, but I got to put it somewhere. And I want to give you guys some time to do that as well as to give you some comments about the stuff that's been going on recently. Um, although we will focus on new believers questions and answers. That's the purpose of this stream. New believers questions and answers. I don't want to uh, divert from that onto a bunch of other topics, but I do want to talk about kind of the elephant in the room stuff a little bit. So Welcome. Uh, I'm Pastor Mike Winger. I do Bible teaching and theology and apologetics online. My goal is to go deep in my study and prep and then make the content very accessible to you. I'm hoping to equip pastors. I'm hoping to equip Christians with content that that inspires them in their love for scripture and their obedience to God, as well as to go a little deeper into their defense of the truth of the Christian faith. So that's what we do here. So here, here are some few, uh, a few announcements. Um, a, a new development, um, as of very recently, Bible Thinker is now, it's now like an official organization. Uh, that's, that is my ministry is, is, you know, I've been under the umbrella of our church for a long time, but now I'm moving into being like its own ministry. I'm still at my church. That's not the issue here, but it's becoming its own entity, so to speak. So Bible Thinker is now like incorporated, as weird as that sounds. Uh, it sounds strange to me. It's still just the same old, same old, but it's nice to have that um, have that umbrella that's there so that I can continue doing the ministry for years to come. That's the idea. And so thank you to supporters, because you're the ones that make this possible, uh, li quite literally, for me not only to continue doing the ministry, but to continue pushing it forward and doing more and more in the future. And so going through all the different paperwork and processes and trying to make sure it's all done correctly, um, which is not something I have a gift at, but I'm, I'm bringing other people in to help. So, so that's going to, that's going to be going on uh, over the next several months to continue the process. And let me say uh, the marriage and divorce study that I spent all that time preparing and then spent an awful lot of time actually teaching quite a lot of time teaching three hour video, the longest teaching I've ever done. I had to like stop it multiple times and like get up and like take a walk just to just kind of, you know, rest my voice and let myself clear my head a little bit before I tackled the next section. Uh, but your guys' response to that has been, has been really wonderful, really positive. There's like something close to a thousand comments on that video and it's not quite a week old yet. And uh, I'm going to be going through those comments to pull out several, I obviously I can't respond to a thousand people, but to pull out several to do a response video too. So that'll be coming soon. Uh, responsible. Well, I say soon, it may be weeks out because I'm letting that content populate and then I'm going to take it, process it and eventually do a, a response teaching, responding to your questions and your pushback. And there's been plenty of pushback. Um, there's everything from people saying that I'm, I'm, I'm a coward and I'm compromised and I'm going to hell. There is, but that's the minority. There are people like that. Most people are just varying encouraging and very thankful for all the, the work and the content that's there. Um, some don't realize that what I've done is a Bible study and they're responding as if something else has gone on, which is a whole different ball game. But, but, but I'm interested in actually thought the thoughtful pushback. And then the questions people have about tough situations that maybe my teaching didn't cover. I'll try to answer as many of those as I can in that follow-up video. But I'm excited. This is all announcements. I have a bunch of stuff to share with you guys as we're heading into the uh, Q&A stuff today. Um, hopefully you're not hearing that beep that I just heard. Sorry if you are. Um, we're working on a new, uh, a new way of getting the questions. At any rate, um, I can't wait to get back to the Mark series. And we are, I'm already studying for the next section in Mark. I'm actually going to teach Mark 10, just that section in Mark 10 where it talks about marriage and divorce. But I'm going to teach it as a Bible study in Mark because I just don't want to have a three-hour video that require you have to watch in order to continue the verse-by-verse -verse teaching as I do my series through the Gospel of Mark. I'm excited about the future of that series. We'll cover lots of different topics in the future as well in that. And um, we're going to keep doing that on a regular basis coming up. And um, also, and, and I'm going to make a separate video. I'll talk about this, but Bible Thinker mugs, more of them are now going to be available um, on, uh, on, and I think I may have it in the video description here. Let me see if it's in our video description on this video. Um, 
Yes, get your own Bible thinker mug here. And so Zockel Pottery is is that's Brent Zockel's the, the guy who said, "Hey, I love your ministry. I want to make mugs for you guys." So you can get mugs. There's a variety of different ones, and you can check them out. And I'm actually not um, making anything financially off of these mugs. Um, I just don't feel super comfortable. <laughs> you know, doing that moving forward. And so I was like, yeah, you know, you know, the, the people are supporting the ministry and it's, it's enough for me. I don't need to be trying to do merchandise stuff, but I love the idea that here's a potter who's made something available to you guys. If you want a Bible thinker mug, so you can get that and it'll just be a way for you to enjoy, uh, this ministry in a new way. So you can check that out. There's links in the description for that. Um, I'm not making anything off of it and that's not because it's immoral to do so. It's just something I felt more comfortable not. So it's just me. Uh, my wife says I'm weird about things like this and she's probably right. Um, okay. So uh, I feel like I have to comment a little bit on some of the stuff that's going on, the chaos and confusion that's going on more confusion actually than chaos, even though there's a lot of chaos. And I, first, let me say this, um, this is, and for those who are watching later, this is, we're right in the, in the middle of the protests and, uh, the wake of George Floyd's murder and all, and all the stuff even before this, that's been going on. And it was just like a, you know, like a spark hit a powder keg is kind of what, what it feels like. And, uh, I don't, but I don't think that I am your guy who's going to give you all the clarity you need and to be able to discern everything you need to discern and pick sides. I'm kind of like personally a little bothered by the demand of so many people that you have to pick this side or that side, because it seems to me that on a lot of sides, there's potential for spiritual error. And that's my uh, concern. Um, you know, this was a, a, a gross and disgusting and horrible murder. Um, I have a, a police officer who's a friend of mine who I talked to about it and he w- he was just shocked. He's like, this is, this is, it, it, it just was unspeakable. He didn't know how to respond to it except to say that this, it, it shouldn't happen, you know, and it's, it's just appalling, uh, and horrific. Um, and now attached to that incident, which was a police brutality incident, is this issue of racism. And how does that connect to Georgia's situation? I don't know. I don't have the wisdom to comment on that. Um, but racism is an issue in our country for sure. And uh, I mean, it is. If you don't think racism is an issue, then maybe it hasn't been an issue in your life, but it, it is an issue in our country. It's a big issue. And it, and it goes in every direction. It goes in every direction. Although I think that black people have experienced a much worse side of it than many other groups have. Um, so on the other hand, if you, you know, the, the crate and, and I'm going to get myself in trouble here. Um, but that's inevitable because you literally can't raise your voice on anything related to these issues without people just freaking out on you because they're not listening for wisdom or clarity or biblical truth or even Christian stances on things. They're listening for trigger words to see where they can come at you. And I, I can't please those people. But if you, if you only see this as a race issue, I think that you might make a spiritual mistake. Um, that is where you pick a side and you don't, you no longer submit yourself to the Lordship of Christ. You no longer submit yourself to following Jesus and fulfilling his command to love others as yourself. Instead, you have an issue that you're going to say, this is my thing. And then you go at it without a lot of self-reflection. And that does happen sometimes. So I don't really want to pick sides. I'd like to have a biblical view of these issues. To me, it seems fairly simple on a biblical perspective, right? Um, All men are made in God's image. That's kind of a big deal. This is like a foundational aspect of human rights when it comes from the Christian worldview. Our biblical perspective is that we're made in God's image. In God's image. And when we see other people, the, the, the terminology of race, the way a lot of people use it, isn't, doesn't really even fit a Christian worldview. We're just talking about like skin color. You know, the, the, these are irrelevant issues, irrelevant differences between human beings. So a biblical view would, I think, be, yeah, we're, we're all made in God's image. So we are image bearers. And that elevates us up with this human rights and human um, value that is, is incredible and immeasurable for every person. And then you think of God's, not only our created nature, but as a Christian, I should be thinking about the fact that God, not only in my created nature, am I made in his image, but he's also died for me on the cross. Jesus died for me on the cross. And this shows God's love for all people. Jesus did this for all people, for Jew and Gentile. And you see some of these issues of classism and stuff being dealt with in a different, very different fashion. We don't want to project our modern um, debates and discussions and problems onto the New Testament text, but we want to recognize that there's application there, that there's just no Jew or Greek or Scythian, barbarian, or slave free. None of it is relevant in Christ because in Christ, we have the love of God for all people. And we also have the 
the um, restoration of people into a right relationship with God and with each other. Read Ephesians, you know, that middle wall of separation that comes down that brings people together, no matter what their ethnic background might be. And that's a pretty big deal. Uh, Jesus kind of was confronted by this issue when he, in, uh, in, in the Gospels, when he's talking about loving your neighbor as yourself, and then they go, well, who's my neighbor? And I feel like that's, that's relevant for some of the stuff we're talking about today, because so many people, what we're doing is we're forgetting that that person over there is my neighbor. They're my neighbor. And so Jesus tells a story of the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, you know, and he, he, he helps out this, this Jewish person. Well, the, the Samaritan in their Jewish culture, it was the Samaritan that was the, um, the rejected. They were like the half Jews and they, they, there was a lot of animosity between these groups of people. Like Jews traveling to Jerusalem for Passover they, they would naturally go through Samaria, but instead they would like cross the Jordan River and go down around on my side. So on your side, if you cross the Jordan River, go down around Samaria to avoid traveling through the area and then go to Jerusalem near Jericho. So this is, this is like, they would travel around the whole area just to avoid these people. The, the Samaritans are like, you know, and the Samaritan woman comes to Jesus and, and, and talks to him at the well. These are all real significant things in scripture. The point is this, the Samaritan treated the Jew like a neighbor. And Jesus is kind of elevating our, our, our concern for, for uh, how we love people to be whoever you come in contact with in life, love them as your neighbor instead of, you know, classism and racism, which, which is on both sides. Uh, you could be, it, it's on all sides. It's on all sides. It's, it's, it's against black and white and Asian and Indian and um, Hispanic and you name it. There's no group that's not, doesn't have racism in it and have racism towards it, both on both sides. And it's, it's, it's unbiblical and it's unchristian for sure. But the thing I would encourage us with, um, and some of you guys, you don't need this, but these are things that are on my heart and I'm, I'm just going to share it with you, which is the thing I see happening. It's like looking at some of the stuff that goes on in the world right now. I, I feel like it's, it's Romans twelve twenty one. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And what that means isn't just that you have this sort of like touchy feely spiritual, I'll just overcome evil with good. Like I'm going to send out good vibes and that will overcome evil. Rather what in context, I think Romans 12 is saying is don't let the sins of others trigger your sin. That's key as a Christian and whatever camp you're finding yourself in, or you're trying to filter through all these things and process stuff. Don't let others, their sin trigger your sin. You know, flesh hooks flesh sin, their sin grabs onto my sin. And so then I can use their wickedness as my justification for my wickedness. And this applies uh, in a lot, a lot of ways today, actually. There's another scripture I'll give, which is Galatians 6. And then we're going to go to your guys' questions. And uh, these are just some thoughts I had on my mind. And I don't think I'm addressing all the issues that are going on. But I think I'm giving us one word of caution as Christians, which is don't allow other people's sins to trigger your sins in bitterness, in hatred, in injustice towards them. Galatians 6, it says, brothers, brothers, if anyone is caught in any, any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And then as a warning, keep watch on yourself, lest you be tempted. So watch out for you, man. Like you, check yourself always, the plank out of your own eye, before seeking to address the issues in our world or in our culture or in the things going on around us. Now, I say this, but I think a lot of Christians are going to be on this page already. But I've seen some justifying wickedness and sin who, who say they're believers and justifying rebellion against ultimately God in the name of righteousness. And anyway, so uh, we're going to go to your guys' questions for the New Believer Q&A. Let's, let's, get, let's get to it. Dory Girl has a question and says, We have a new pastor that teaches that physical healing is equal to salvation in the atonement. Jesus paid for your physical healing, just like your salvation on the cross. Is this biblical? Let me read that again. Um, he's teaching, and there's a quote marks here, quote, Jesus paid for your physical healing, just like your salvation on the cross. Is this biblical? So, okay, let me, let me make it, a, a, let's go to the text that they're, that they're likely to go to. Um, uh, let's see here. It's in, it's in, I think it's first Peter. First Peter two twenty four. Let's take you there. 
So there, this, and I have more teaching on this in other places, uh, Dory, but I hope that what I share with you today helps. The, the idea is that, um, Hey, we're supposed to get healing now, just like we get salvation now. And the reasoning goes like this, because Jesus purchased that healing on the cross. First Peter 2.24 is often a place they'll go to for this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. By his wounds you have been healed. And, it, and there's that phrase, um, by his wounds you have been healed. And they're saying that this is referring to a physical, physical healing. Now, without getting into all the details, let me say, I don't recommend you argue against the idea that this is also talking about physical healing. I think that when you look at all the texts in context, that it is referring in addition to healing our, um, our malady of sin, also healing uh, sickness and physical issues. I do think it's referring to that. But the, the, the problem is, and the place where I would disagree with your, your, your pastor, I think, from what you describe him as, uh, Dory, is that I would say it doesn't mean it all happens right now. Right? So Jesus' death on the cross also purchases me a resurrected body. And that resurrected body will not get sick and it will not get physical issues, physical suffering. That is total healing, right? But I don't get it right now. And it's the insistence that we have to have all of the benefits of Christ, or excuse me, some of the benefits of Christ, they demand that they have to happen right now. That's the part where I, I, I get off the bus with that kind of theology. And I say, no. Um, sickness and suffering is expected in the Christian life. And it is that future resurrection. That's where we look to for the perfect state. That's what I look to uh, one day in the future. So my, my answer is I will affirm, I think, in my opinion, that by his stripes were healed does refer to physical healing, but the timing of receiving the physical healing, that's where we would, we would have a debate. And here's where I would kind of try to whittle them down a little bit is I would get them to recognize that there are many things that Jesus purchased for us on the cross that we are not benefiting or experiencing right now, right? We're not in his presence for all eternity right now. We're, we're not experiencing our resurrected new bodies that are incorruptible and undefiled. No, right now we're, we're incorruptible bodies. They're still corruptible. Read 1 Corinthians 15 and I, I can, I will still experience even things like death I mean, certainly Jesus purchased me life, but Christians experience death. And it seems strange to me that those who, maybe there's a sophisticated version of this, but that those who say you've got healing from Jesus and you can expect it right now, you can demand it right now in every case. Um, it's strange to me that they don't say the same thing about, about death. Like they, they just accept dying, but they don't accept the common cold. And I think that that it's, it's like a, I'm not saying they're hypocrites, but it's like a type of theological hypocrisy or a double standard to rebuke the common cold. And then to be like, well, you, you know, but you're still going to die of old age. And I expect it. Like, it seems like it shows there's a problem with their actual views right there. Um, Eddie Vasquez says, what is your advice for a new believer encountering militant anti-theists? Um, Eddie, my advice for new Christians who are encountering militant anti-theists um, my first thought would be, don't spend all your time with those people. Um, generally speaking, anti militant anti-theists, the type you're talking about, they will regularly, especially to a new believer, they'll try to tell you what Christianity believes. They'll try to inform you of your beliefs so that, and then tell you how wrong they are. But they're constantly misrepresenting Christian beliefs. I mean, over and over and over again. Now, sometimes a new believer doesn't know this because they're still learning Christian faith. And so they don't even know they're arguing against a misrepresentation of Christianity. And so they're just not really equipped for that discussion. So I would say don't spend too much of your time with them. You need to know the word. You need to get grounded and just know biblical truth and right theology before you can launch into correcting wrong teachings. So learn the truth so you can combat the error, but focus on learning the truth. I also think that um, new Christians can sometimes take upon themselves a greater burden than they should when encountering skeptics and unbelievers, uh, in, in, especially online, right? Because online, it's all about fact-checking everybody. And so what they'll do is they'll throw a bunch of objections to you about your Christian faith. And so you go through and you you, you know, maybe you spend three or four hours fact checking these five different things they said and, and digging up all the data. And then you come back at them and you're like, well, on this point, this, here's, here's a big response to you. Then on this point, here's another response. And you give them all these responses. Well, often you will find in all honesty 
they've been asking the same question, getting the same good answers from people for years, and they don't care. And so you realize that you sort of wasted your time with them. They didn't care about your answer. They only wanted to stump you. The moment they realized their question didn't stump you and that you had a good answer, they just ask another question. And so, in my opinion, when you give good answers and all you get back is questions without recognition, without receiving the good answer, then it might be a sign that you're wasting your time with that person. They may have had the same conversation a hundred times. They might know they're misrepresenting the Christian faith and just not care. Now, that doesn't mean they all are like that, but you're talking about militant anti-theists. Um, I think that you might better use your time elsewhere <laughs> in some of those cases. Um, the other thing I would mention is this. There's a spiritual dimension to the rejection of God. And we can't just treat people like we're only dealing with intellectual barriers when in reality there's all kinds of spiritual stuff going on. And um, be aware of this. Be mindful of it. Pray for that person. Minister to them. Don't get irritated. Don't get in the flesh. If you choose to, out of wisdom, not respond to them or not go back and forth, that's good. But if you're doing it out of anger or frustration or irritation and you're no longer caring about that person's soul, then, then there's a problem on your part. And as you do care about that person's soul, as you do pray about that and seek to have compassion for them, think about how your answer might break down the spiritual barrier rather than just the intellectual one. So those are my thoughts for that, for what it's worth. Uh, Jaden Havener says, is Genesis 1 to be taken literally as in six 24-hour days and why? Um, Jaden, I'm not confident that I know the answer to this question. Um, you can... Here's, here's where I stand right now on this issue. And I do think it's an important issue. And I think it's one that I, I, I wish I had a better, more thorough answer for you on. I'll just, let me tell you about a little bit of my journey, Jaden. How's this sound? My journey is uh, previously thinking, uh, Genesis 1, um, I'm not sure what to think of it. And then I, get, I encountered certain teaching and it's like, okay, it's definitely got to be 24-hour days because that's what the Hebrew always means. And that's the only possible way you could interpret this text. And that was the teaching that I'd heard. And I thought, okay, that, that's, that's the way it is. Uh, slowly, slowly over time, encountered over the years, thoughtful Christians, thoughtful Christians who were serious about the authority and inerrancy of scripture, who said, no, you're, you're, you're misinterpreting Genesis 1. Look, you know, here you have these reasons for your Hebrew over here, but that doesn't hold true. That's not even true about the Hebrew language over here. Uh, genre concerns that are legitimate genre concerns, not just like liberal progressive mumbo jumbo phrases, but like actual serious genre concerns about the meaning of the text. And it kind of put me into a, a place where I went, huh, you know, this isn't, this isn't just a question of those who love the word of God and have a 24 hour view of Genesis one versus those who are liars and hypocrites. Um, rather this, there's like serious, thoughtful, exegetical reasons to reconsider a 24 hour view of Genesis one. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure what, what exactly my interpretation of it is. And I'm sorry, I can't give you a better one, but I will say there's, there's good thoughtful reasons. Um, what I might recommend and I'm not saying that I agree with his conclusions on this because he does have conclusions that I, I haven't come to. But uh, William Lane Craig in his Defenders class online has a bunch of free resources. And in it is a massive survey of, ma I mean, massive, hours and hours and hours, it's like 30, 40 parts, surveying how we're going to interpret and understand Genesis 1. And he evaluates various views and he tries to be fair um, and balanced with his approach on how he handles them. And I think that you might find that to be helpful if you want kind of like an audio, an audio or video um, survey of some of the different issues and things that are going on there. So yeah, sorry, Jaden, I can't be more help. I just don't know um, what my final answer is on those things. It's one of those questions I'm still, still working through and processing. Uh, Chantal one says, um, oh, let me just say this though, before I move on to Chantal's question. Um, real Christians disagree on this topic of how you interpret Genesis one. Like they're still believers. The genuineness of a believer is not in question on this passage. And, uh, and it's a separate question when you, and I'm not even addressing it where you ask, well, does science and, and research agree with my interpretation of Genesis? That's a whole different issue. I'm not even talking about that. I'm saying that there are textual exegetical and genre concerns that make me think there's very possible legitimacy to other views other than the uh, 24 hour strict view that I, I used to hold. And I think that that's something we need to be open to if we're going to be Bible people. Uh, Chantel one said, what is food offered to idols? Uh, if I understand Acts 15, 20 and Revelation 2, 20, that seems to be a law where we have to keep is halal food 
offered to idols, everything seems to be halal nowadays. I don't even know enough about halal food to tell you if it's offered to idols. Um, Acts 15.20 and Revelation 2.20 do talk about food offered to idols. I'll I'll add another passage in there for you as you're processing this. So Acts 15.20, this is, this is the command to the Gentile church. Uh, I mean, it's to the whole church, but it's specifically addressing to Gentiles. And they're like, Hey, don't eat things sacrificed to idols. Abstain from things polluted by idols. That is an instruction that they are given. And then in the in uh, Revelation, there's actually condemnation for violating this. And this is where Jesus in his letters to the churches, he says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So th- this would... S- would seem just black and white, right? You can't eat food sacrificed to idols, but then you have another passage and that is, um, in first Corinthians, I want to say it's first Corinthians 14. Let me, uh, here, I'm going to find the passage for you. And and I think it makes things a little bit more complicated for us than that black and white yay, nay kind of scenario. Um, to find the passage for you. First Corinthians eight. Yeah, there it is. Okay. First Corinthians eight says now concerning food offered to idols. And then now, now we've had this short summary. Don't eat food offered to idols. Right. But then here's a more detailed examination of it. First Corinthians eight one. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But any, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Um, short, short exegesis here is Paul in 1 Corinthians, he's addressing things the Corinthians have written to him about. And one of the issues is idols. And they're like, well, we can eat, we can eat whatever we want because we know that there's nothing wrong with the idol, with, with the food, right? The idols are fake and we can eat whatever we want. Or maybe they had the view, hey, we know the truth behind this food and that it's, that it's bad, so we can't eat it. It could have been either of those. Uh, verse 4, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So idols are, they're really ultimately empty objects. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. And here's the problem. Okay, so he he says, hey, on one end, we know that the idol is ultimately nothing. And that the the God behind it, it, ultimately, he's going to say it's demonic, but it isn't like a God God, like in the, in the way that people are thinking. Um, and so we have this knowledge of the pettiness, the pointlessness of offering food to idols and all that. But verse seven, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not all people understand the emptiness of the food offered to idols. So here's a reason why maybe you shouldn't eat it, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Now this is a really interesting scenario. So some people, they used to be part of these idolatrous groups, and so they're eating the food that was offered to the idol as though they're partaking again in the ceremony and the ritual and the paganism that they were once involved in. While other people, they eat the food because they know that it means nothing that it was offered to an idol. So we have two different groups of people, and their conscience and their intent behind eating the food, that's the significant issue. He says, food will not commit us to God, for we are no worse off if we do not eat, no better off if we do, but take care that it is that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Ah, uh, so now there's a new concern. Hey, maybe you feel like you could eat the food. And, and let me offer this too. The food, it's not like they would go to a pagan's temple and then buy food there offered to the rather, um, in the marketplace in Corinth, when they went to just buy food, there were vendors who were selling food that maybe even unbeknownst to you as the buyer, had been offered to an idol and then brought to be sold in the market. And so we're not talking about partaking in any way in any kind of pagan rituals. We're just saying they bought food that had been offered to an idol. It'd be, it'd be kind of like me going to a Buddhist restaurant and I find out that they're, they're offering every, the restaurant and their food in prayers to some sort of you know deity type concept that they have. There's different kinds of Buddhism. Some of them do 
have gods and stuff. So, um, he says, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge, meaning that they feel free to eat the food because they know it doesn't mean anything, um, eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat, uh, eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So I think we're getting the full orb teaching to summarize all that, those three passages um, in, in, uh, in Acts, in Revelation, and then 1 Corinthians 8. Here's the, here's the idea. Um, eating food offered to idols in the sense that you're participating in some kind of pagan ritual is absolutely forbidden in any way, shape, or form. Eating food that was offered to idols in the sense that you're buying food, purchasing food that was simply part of some pagan thing, and you're like, that's empty, you know, God is the Lord of all, that's, I don't care what, what, you know, juju they said about this stuff, I can eat what I want. That is, at least in, for those who have that knowledge, that is somehow acceptable. However, if they're causing anyone else to stumble, they should hold back even from that liberty that they do have. So it's complicated is the, is the bottom line. I hope that, I hope that that gives you some clarity. Um, brother Dave has a question. He says, once someone is born again, can they lose their salvation due to bad behavior? Um, so brother Dave, this is, this is a question I've received a lot and I understand it's especially coming from new believers, but I, I get, I get this question all the time, which is the question of can a person lose their salvation and then fill in the blank for the reason that you give there. And on this question, kind of like the Genesis one, I'm not confident in my answer on this question. And in one respect, I, I see the person's in Christ, the person's, I mean, positionally in Christ. I don't see how someone could just like, you know, work. They've been saved by grace. How could they work their way out of that? Like that, especially to me, seems like the most far-fetched version of losing your salvation is the idea of sending your way out of the kingdom. That to me seems like the most far-fetched version of that, that I, that I, I would say, I don't, I think the answer is no to your question. On the other hand, though, if someone were to say apostatize, like they were to say, Hey, I reject Christ. I reject the gospel. And they walk away from Jesus. They reject, they no longer have faith in that hypothetical scenario. That would be a loss of salvation. Of course, then there's a new debate, right? Did they lose their salvation or were they never saved to begin with? And this is the debate that I don't know how to mediate and I don't know the perfect answer for. Pragmatically, like in the normal life of a person, we're debating about their past, not their present. Like everyone looks at them in the present and says, look, you, you've, you're rejecting Christ. You need salvation. It doesn't really affect our ministry to them or outreach to them or the invitation for them to come to Christ and to repent and believe and be forgiven. It doesn't change any of that. It's in some ways, it feels like a semantic debate, but it is significant. It is important. And maybe one day I'll do a research project on it and, and come out with more, uh, more clarity on it. So, so yeah, I, I have a hard time thinking though, that person can simply sin their way out of the kingdom. If I do see a believer who's living in gross and constant sin, I wonder if they're real believers. I, I, I question their proclamation of faith. I don't think personally that they've lost their salvation as a result of these things. I, I think that maybe they, in that, in that case, I do think that maybe they were just not saved and it's becoming evident through their works. Um, God give us wisdom as we wrestle with these things. Um, I generally try not to make judgment calls on other people's salvation, but sometimes scenarios require you to make some judgment call. Uh, Blue Gum has a question. Hi, Mike. I'm becoming overwhelmed and confused about Matthew. Oh, and you give three verses, Matthew 22, 37, Mark 12, 30, Deuteronomy 6, 5, regarding loving the Lord with all your soul, spirit, heart, mind, body, life. What does that mean? Okay. All right. Let's Let's look at it a little bit. Um, this would, I mean, ideally what I would do is a whole word study before um, weighing in on this, but I'm not unfamiliar with, with, uh, with those passages. So, and he said to him, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Okay. So we have three things that are stated here. This is in Matthew, heart, soul, mind. And then we have a passage in Mark 1230, which says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. So we have heart, soul, mind, and strength added. So there's there's agreement here. There's not disagreement. There's just, in addition, also the word strength is there. And then Deuteronomy 6.5. 
Um, you shall love the Lord. This, now, those were Jesus in the Gospels talking. Now we get the Old Testament passage that he's referring to. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Um, so, the um, it may be that the answer is that these phrases of heart and soul and might are not as clear delineations, like where you could separate a person into heart, soul, and might, or heart, soul, mind, and strength. It may just be that it is meant to be an all-encompassing thing. So in the most inclusive phrase, where there's four, four words used, heart, soul, mind, and strength, you know, I would tend to think of the heart being either your full commitment um, or, or even also emotionally, I don't really know if that's the right phrase to use, but your full commitment and sincerity um, with your soul being your, your very life. So my whole life is devoted to him. I've invested my life in, in, in him and loving him. Uh, my mind being my thought processes, the things I focus on, my, my intense and um, my thinking. And then strength to be like, I remember reading one commentary on the word strength and they were like, it's like saying you're, ugh, you're like, there isn't maybe the best word for it in English, but it's just this idea of your, your full self. And that's what all of the passages are communicating. So I, I wouldn't stumble too much over there being slightly different wording of the concept of loving God with everything you've got. And you can categorize those things in various ways. So. I hope that helps a little bit. Um, I don't think it's something you need to be too confused about. Uh, Nicholas Ambrose says, how can a person be sanctified? And I think that, um, I mean, first uh, Thessalonians chapter four, it talks about sanctification um, and it talks specifically, it focuses on sexual immorality or sexual purity. He says, um, finally, then brothers, we urge, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive um, yeah, as you received from us, how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing that you do so more and more for, and that's kind of what sanctification is, right? Doing so more and more. I'm growing in my serving and following of God in, in my personal holiness and obedience to Christ. Then he says, for, you know, what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he gives an example of your sanctification which is that you abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, this is, this is like Christianity 101. Sexual purity and sexual godliness is huge in the Christian life, which it doesn't mean abstain from sex, right? This is not the command. It's abstain from sexual immorality, which is pervasive in our culture, in our media, on our cell phones, on, on our screens. Um, and in our relationships, it's pervasive. It's a huge issue. And it's one of the great areas where you can learn how to what? Control your own body in holiness and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles or like the world who don't know God. So that's like a great starting point. But the idea of sanctification is just giving of your life over to the service and uh, pleasure of God. It says also in Romans 12, 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So you're not just dying, you're living for him. You're a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. That's the idea. So sanctification isn't just about try to be better because better is better as if, as if, um, good was just sort of like a list of policies that Christians are trying to follow, but rather our eyes aren't on the list of policies. Our eyes are on the Lord. When you, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? When you love him with all you are, you're living for him. And you see that the holiness you're bringing into your life, the abstaining from sins and, the, and walking in love and grace and holiness and pursuing good is pursuing God. It's personal. It's about you and him. You're presenting your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a God glorifying act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So how can you grow in sanctification? Um, it's going to be, you know, sin less, do right more, but you do it as an act personally between you and God, not just following lists of rules. I mean, don't get me wrong. You could break the Christian life down into lists of rules. The point is that it, it, and you can, and people are like, you can't, it's, it's religion. There's no, it's not, it's not religion. There aren't rules. They're like, you could break it down as rules. 
but it's two dimensional. If you forget that you're doing all this unto the Lord and for his glory and, and for, for love of him. And if you're struggling with sin, I encourage any of you listening to remember that your act of love for God, that is key in your battle against sin. It's key. You know, it's like when Joseph refused Potiphar's wife and she wanted to sleep with him. And he was like, how can I sin against God like that? Like it was personal against God. And that realization that I am a vessel filled with the Holy Spirit. I have been given God himself to dwell in me and all by his incredible grace and love forgiven of my sin. The sanctification he calls me to is relationship in him. Like saint, relationship in God is sanctification and the holiness I walk in is living out that relationship. You know, it, it is Christ who lives in me. And the more you see your sanctification relationally, I think it, it helps. It helps. So um, I'm sure you have more questions about that, Nicholas. I hope that those thoughts give you something, something fruitful. Um, Alani Lazardo has a question. Do you have any new Christian advice for getting into a routine of studying scripture and praying? I've been finding it hard to be consistent and orderly with Bible study and praying. Um, so one of the things for praying is I'd recommend having a prayer list. You know, you can make a, a list of things that you're praying over. And so as you're moving through that list, it's sort of petitionary prayers, prayers where you're asking God for something that gives you focus in your time of prayer. But I also would recommend consider, you know, using the Lord's prayer in your prayer life, um, learning and memorizing the Lord's prayer that we have. You might call it the disciples prayer, really, that Jesus gave to them and said, you know, pray our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And as you pray through this thoughtfully, Never vacantly, never, never like blind repetition, but, but as you pray through that thoughtfully, that could aid your prayer life. And that's a fruitful thing. Um, also, I, I think for studying the scripture, um, Alani, for me, it helps to think of my, my time in the word as different kinds of different sort of versions of Bible study, right? So sometimes I'm just listening to the word. I just put it on audio, just listen to it, or I'm just reading it through and I'm not going to stop and do like thoughtful, careful analysis. I'm just going to read and I'm cool with that, right? Like I'm cool just just soaking it up and thinking about it, but but more as thinking about large sections and not individual little pieces of the scripture. Other times you're doing more careful Bible study. That's like a different kind of category. And if you think about those things, that can help. Um, listening to Bible studies can also help, but you don't want to lay aside the reading of the word. You could listen to it on audio. That's another great thing we have nowadays that people didn't have in the past. You could just for free get a Bible app and listen to the word of God on audio. I think getting a routine, like you suggested, is a really good idea. Um, does it work in the morning? Does it work in the evening? What works best for you? If you wait till the evening to read, are you always drained of energy? That's just not wise. But one thing I would, I would encourage you with is this. Um, we sometimes, we, we get so much nourishment when we hear a Bible study. And we're blessed when we're in church and our pastor speaks and teaches and you're like, man, that really ministered to me. And then you go and you open the Bible on your own and you read for five minutes and you think, it didn't have the same effect. And many, many times it does, right? There are times where you just open the word and you're just blown away by something God shows you. But there's how many times where you just open the Bible and you go, no, I didn't have that like woohoo kind of thing going on. And I just want to say that expectation of a powerful moment every time you read the Bible, that will totally mess up your Bible reading. Because not only will you be disappointed with scripture wrongly, but it also turns you into like a scriptural narcissist. What I mean is I'm opening the Bible not to learn God's word, but I just want to feel good. I just want God to give me the feels as often as possible. And so I open the word and I'm disappointed because what? I didn't want to learn what God said. I wanted to feel good that day. That could be a major obstacle to learning scripture is sort of these expectations we place. Uh, now, I, I do have times where I open the word and I just am thoroughly ministered to and blessed, but I don't go for those times. I go for knowing the word and that's what our aim should be. I hope that helps. The uh, last thing I'll say is, Alan, to your question, uh, be okay not knowing what the Bible meant in a passage and just keep reading. Don't be discouraged or slow down if you don't understand a passage. You just you keep reading. You're just storing it up. Maybe later you'll get it more. It's not a big deal. Diana Kay has a question. Should new Christians avoid watching non-Christian movies? Thank you for spending your time in the Bible and doing research. May God continue to bless you in your teaching and study. Thank you, Diana. Um, should you avoid watching non-Christian movies? Well, I don't know what a non-Christian movie actually is. And I don't know that we, any of us do. So 
I mean, do I, if Christians work on a movie as a Christian or, or if it has an overtly Christian message, then I call that a Christian movie. What if it's like a, a, a subtle Christian message? Or what if it's a, a movie that was made by Christians, but it's actually teaching some unbiblical stuff? You know, what if it's The Shack? <laughs> Is that a Christian movie? So I, I, I have a hard time with this. Um, I don't think that Christians should think about the media that they're consuming, music, movie, TVs, that kind of stuff, as Christian or not Christian. I do think that we should consider it godly or ungodly or maybe neutral. Like if you had these three categories, godly, ungodly, or neutral. And if it seems to be fitting much more in the ungodly category, then you probably shouldn't watch it. If it's if it's neutral or fitting in the godly category, then maybe you can watch it. But in some cases, it's kind of like that food sacrifice to idols thing. It's going to hit different people in different ways. I, I like to tell people, just follow your conscience. But in my experience, Christians' consciences sometimes change based on what they like. Well, I don't feel convicted about that movie. Why is that? Because I like it and... There's plenty of stuff that people are watching and consuming, especially nowadays, as, as um, regulations disappear on the content that's put in front of us because it's it's no longer going through like networks that have policies and editing. It's just going right up on streaming services online. That I think that this is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And I've noticed in my, in my own life, I've I've plenty of times started a show and and then later was like, man, I really shouldn't be watching this. And it was like, at what point was I just going to be honest with myself that this is not something I should be watching? I felt that struggle. I think a lot of other believers do too. My thought is if you're feeling that struggle, um, at least stop for a while and pray and give some space so that you're not just being pulled by your desires to enjoy whatever you like about that show. You're actually making a godly decision. But yeah, I don't, however, think um, all non-Christian music or music or movies produced by non-Christians is is ungodly and you shouldn't watch it. I don't think that's the case at all. I I think that that's an overreaction. But most people are probably underreacting. And myself, too, in many many times in the past. I've been thinking about that even even just recently was thinking about it going like, yeah, wait, am am I compromising here in this? And those who were like, well, I just don't feel convicted. I've never heard good cases for that. I just always hear... Uh, people who don't want to think for very long about an issue because they have something they enjoy. That's what more often happens. So honor God, keep your conscience clean before the Lord for sure, but make sure that your conscience is sensitive. And a question from Quinn Windsor, which is, is there such a thing as a non-Trinitarian Christian? I think that Quinn, that there's such a thing as a Christian who doesn't understand the Trinity, a Christian who doubts or has questions about the Trinity, but when it comes to one who overtly and expressly denies the Trinity, that is where I start to say, look, in the understanding of God's very nature, if you're expressly denying it, I, I question whether you can be called Christian. I don't, I don't think the term is properly used. And is it possible that there's still salvation going on there? Ultimately, that's a question for God, and I don't have the perfect answer there. But many times those who are denying the Trinity are, are, are ultimately not just denying, they're not just denying any old aspect of, of our understanding of the Trinity. They're specifically denying the deity of Jesus Christ, the very person of Christ. Um, and that's pretty significant. That's pretty significant. And it's clear in the New Testament uh, who Christ is. So Gutrog2 has a question. A dear friend has said that you can speak stuff into existence how can I gently correct this unless I'm the one that needs to be corrected? I don't think you need to be corrected at all here. Um, I don't know there's, that there's any biblical case for speaking stuff into existence. Not really. I mean, there's text, but any, you know, one thought you might have, you see, well, how can you gently correct it is ask them to make their case. Explain what you mean by speaking things into existence and, um, and let them walk through carefully explaining how they get there, right? Is it because God spoke and then everything was? Okay, but that's not, that's God, not you. <laughs> like, what is it? I can't do everything God does. Um, and if that's their theology, there's a problem there. So I would ask you to let them build their case, gut rog, and then walk them through the verses that they're using to try to establish their case and try to figure out if it, if it makes sense in context. That's, that's what I would do. Um, they're probably part of like a sort of word faith type movement. Many of the people who I've heard say stuff like that didn't think about it very deeply first. And so just asking them to think more deeply about it can sometimes correct their theology. 
because they go, yeah, well, I don't mean that. Maybe, and so that just that act, that question alone can sometimes make a difference. Kuketso Mathibi uh, says, is my pastor my spiritual father? Um, well, you know, in in the in the New Testament, Paul the Apostle, he talks about himself as a father, uh, like a spiritual father to people. And the people t- who he's talking to are people who he evangelized personally. And so when he says he's like their spiritual father, he means that he brought the gospel to them. They got saved. And then he first, he was the first one to disciple them. And so he says into, I think it's to Corinth. He says, you don't have many, you have many teachers, but not many fathers. And he refers to himself as like a spiritual father. So he's not referring to his, his, his role as an apostle here. He's rather referring to his individual role in, I think, bringing them the gospel and then initially discipling them in their lives. So it's okay to say that someone's like a spiritual father to you. But for instance, my pastor is not my spiritual father in that sense. He didn't lead me to Christ. Uh, I don't actually have a spiritual father because it was like I didn't really get discipled much for many years in my life. And so it was like nobody was there filling that role. But if so, you have someone who filled that role for you, I think it'd be okay to call him like a spiritual father. I don't want to go too far with it or get weird about it. Uh, But yeah, I don't think that by default, your pastor just being your pastor is therefore your spiritual father. That seems weird to me. It doesn't fit the usage of the concept in the New Testament. Utopia Buster 2017 says, is speaking in tongues required? Um, Definitely not, Utopia Buster. Many people will say that you have to speak in tongues and... They'll quote a few different passages. Um, One of the ones they'll talk about in Acts is these several examples of people speaking in tongues when they get saved. And that them speaking in tongues was like, and it was proof that they had been given the Holy Spirit. And and that's totally true. So we have like Cornelius and his family and they, in Acts 10, I believe it is, and they um, speak, they, they get filled with the Spirit, they get saved and they speak in tongues all right there on the spot. That's true, right? But what we don't have in Acts is every single time someone gets saved, they speak in tongues. This doesn't happen. Not every time. It's more like a specific thing God does for a specific reason. Nor do we ever have in the New Testament a statement that if you're a Christian, you'll speak in tongues. There's just nowhere in the Bible. I think it's highly abusive and creates tons of anxiety in people when you tell them that they have to speak in tongues or else they're not saved. I think this is horrible. Um, Let me take you to one text. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 30, there's a, um, a rhetorical question that's asked, and the answer shows us that all people don't speak in tongues. So he says in verse 29, uh, are all apostles? Are all apostles? What would the answer be? The answer would be no. Are all prophets? The answer would be no. Not all are not prophets. Are all teachers? No. Not all are teachers. James even says, let not many of you even seek to be teachers. And then he says, do all work miracles? Wait, wait a second. Paul's suggesting that not everyone works miracles. This kind of goes against some of the hyper signs and wonders movement that's going on right now. No, all don't work miracles. I'm sorry. That's just not the way it is. And it's not the way it's supposed to be. Do all possess gifts of healing? Apparently not. All do not possess gifts of healing. Do all speak with tongues? No. See, this is, this is the rhetorical no. It's, it's, in, it's in every example. Verse 29. All are not apostles, all are not prophets, all are not teachers, all don't work miracles, all don't possess gifts of healings, and all do not speak in tongues, just like all do not interpret. But he suggests that we earnestly desire the higher gifts. So it's good to desire those gifts. Lord, I want to have this gift from you. But does everyone do it in O? No. And Paul uses that the common knowledge that in Corinth, that not everybody speaks in tongues, even in Corinth where the gifts were all over the place, right? He, he uses the common knowledge that not everybody does it in order to talk to them about the greatest thing they should be doing, which is loving one another. I hope that that, I hope that that helps. I think that that's one text that seems to speak to it directly. Yeah. Don't let people freak you out telling you that if you have to speak in tongues or you're not a Christian, they're, um, they're wrong. <laughs> they're wrong and they're creating anxiety. And I would I don't, don't want you to get mad at them for it. Maybe correct them if they'll listen. But often those people I've encountered won't. They won't listen. They have a dogma and they're stuck on it. Uh, Kate 22 says, Katie 22 says, thank you, Mike, for all the content. It's a blessing. It is. Uh, and thank you. You're, you're very welcome. It's my pleasure and honor. Um, Katie. So is it biblical to have to do baptism classes and pass a test to be baptized? It seems in the Bible, people get dunked ASAP. 
I actually totally agree with you, Katie. People do get, just get dunked, right? This is like when they when they get saved. So the probably the best example of this is the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, there's another example with Cornelius in Acts 10, but the Ethiopian eunuch, this guy, he's reading the book of Isaiah. He's on his way back to Ethiopia after having visited Jerusalem. And there he encounters one of the, one of the disciples, one of the apostles. And he's, he, um, he deals with Philip, the evangelist, excuse me. So he, he talks to Philip and Philip and him talk about Isaiah 53. And the man comes to believe in Jesus right there on the spot. And he asks, is anything preventing me from being baptized? And Philip's like, no, there's water. Let's, let's dunk you. That's, that's the uh, Mike Winger butchered paraphrase version. So he gets baptized right away. In Acts, in Acts chapter 10, Peter shares the gospel with Cornelius and his family. They hear the gospel. The same day they hear the gospel, they get saved, filled with the spirit, speaking tongues as, as a way of God proving to the people, look, I'm cleansing the Gentiles by the same gospel message and by faith. Uh, that I'm cleansing the Jews from. And so they're with, and they get baptized. They get baptized right away. They're like, we can't stop them from being baptized. Now, later on in the church, they developed traditions. Uh, we, we see this even in the late first century in, um, in a non-biblical document where they're, they're talking about sort of like classes or, you know, education they have to go through before they get baptized. I think that this was just to make sure that they gave the gospel out to people that they were giving and what they understood. Personally, I am leery of that. If someone is making a profession of faith in Christ and they seem genuine, I want to baptize them and I don't think we should delay on that. So there's my, there's my short answer. Um, I think the classes are good. I don't think that they're required. I think it's a, an extra biblical tradition that's not necessary. Antonia says, can you explain original sin? Is sin inherited or something we commit? Surely an innocent child is not born corrupted. Um, well, I mean, they're definitely born corrupted in a physical sense, right? Like they're born into bodies that are prone to corruption. And so when we, when we say that children are innocent, I think we need to be careful with our terminology here. Um, we don't mean that they're morally pure, right? Like as, let me, let me be more careful. That's probably not careful enough. When I say that children are, are innocent, I don't mean that all of their motives and actions are holy. That's not what I mean, right? Like, I definitely don't mean, and everything they say and do is so holy and good. They're, they're so wonderful in, in every way. Like, I don't, I don't mean that. Uh, I mean, a two-year-old that's throwing a tantrum would beat their parent black and blue if they could, in some cases. I mean, they would violently hurt you if possible. It's God's grace that children are very small. <laughs> this is, this is good. If, if your two-year-old was the size of your 18-year-old, you'd have a fight on your hands. They're not morally pure in all their motives and all their intents. Yet, yet, at six months out of the womb, it's not like the baby's like laying there thinking like, I'm thinking lustful, evil thoughts. Like, I don't really know how many thoughts they're really thinking at this point. So they're not like guilty of these active sins yet, but they have inherited the same nature we all have that is a fallen nature that is prone towards sin. And so I, I know there's more to that question, but I hope that gives some clarity. They've inherited a corrupted nature, which is evidenced not only by their eventual sinful habits, but also by the fact that they're prone towards, towards uh, sickness and illness. And that way, it's part of the corruption. It doesn't mean that we deserve every sickness we get. It just means it's part of that corruption that we've inherited. Um, but yeah, we, we ultimately are punished for our individual sins, not for uh, Adam's sin, but we're brought alongside it. That's my thought. Juan Diaz, how should I help my little brother get closer to Christ outside of Bible study and telling him what's right and wrong? Um, I say get him serving, Juan. Uh, if, if you can help get him helping out, you know, doing some kind of service, that would be good. Um, there's a lot of different ways that you can do that. And so you can go and you could take him evangelizing. You could take him to do good works there in the local fellowship in the church. You could take him to different projects. You could also help him process the stuff that he's going through right now um, from a biblical perspective. And you know who's good at this? Uh, Brett Kunkel. Brett Kunkel from, from the ministry called Maven, M-A-V-E-N. And what they like to do is they like to take whatever's going on at the time around you and help you learn how to uh, process through a Christian worldview all the events of the day. And, and as you get, you train him to help, you know, learn and utilize his Christian worldview to interpret the events going on around him, that's going to be massively helpful in his life. So there's a few things 
you know, beyond just saying what's right and wrong, it's like, don't just tell him what's right and wrong, help him learn how to process it and how to think himself. So Maven has some resources um, on that. Uh, also, Sean McDowell has some resources on that that you might look into one. Um, and then, yeah, hope that helps. John the Arminian um, says, are the soul and spirit two different things? And if so, what is the difference? That's a great question, John. That's a really good question. <laughs> I'm not sure what the right answer is there. So I'll have to pass on that one. I've given it some thought. And the more you think about it, the more you're, you go, hmm, what is the difference between soul and spirit? In in scripture, the, the two terms don't seem to be used always in technical senses. And so if you come up with a definition for soul and then apply that to every use of the word, it won't fit. And the same thing with spirit. You, you apply that to every use of the word, it doesn't perfectly fit. So that's a question that I, I have as well. Uh, Harold Fisher, what is... What law is in our hearts? Something I've been stuck on for a while. What law is in our hearts? Um, Okay, I think I know what you're referring to here. So there's a few places in scripture where we talk about this or we read about this. And one of them is in the Old Testament, which tells us that God is going to write his law into our hearts. And... um, we also get this uh, even in the book of Psalms. Let me take you guys there. Um, it talks about like a godly man. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. So, you know, the question is like, okay, is this the Old Testament law like the law of Moses? Or is it something else? Is it something else? And I think for the New Testament Christian, we have in a sense, it's the law of Moses. But in a modified sense, it's the law of Christ. And again, I might do a video on the topic of what is the law of Christ one of these days, but basically it's the fulfillment of the law of Moses in Christ and then living out the ultimate purpose, God's moral purpose for your life. So I wouldn't say it's the law of Moses, the law that's written in our hearts. He's, you know, there's a new covenant and with it is a new law. It's consistent with the law of Moses, but it's not in its particulars the same as the law of Moses. It's consistent in the sense that it's a fulfillment of it. I I know I might be confusing a few people, but I'm trying to be careful with my terminology here. Um, And so, yeah, his, his laws, he writes into our hearts. Another place you can look at is Hebrews 10. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And so he ultimately what God's saying is that rather than, than you simply being aware of outside principles that you're to follow, I will give you an internal uh, love for goodness. And this is part of what sanctification is, the renewal of my mind. I, I love what is good. I love what is right. I love serving God. And he changes me from the inside out. Let's see here. Um, Carbon273 asks, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? I'm just going to do two more questions and we'll call it a night because we're just past the hour mark here. Uh, what are the essentials of the Christian faith? Um, so we're, we're going to talk about the person of Christ, like who Jesus is, um, the nature of God himself. So, you know, God, I, I think the doctrine of the Trinity is, is an essential of the Christian faith. Uh, I don't mean here that you have to fully understand it to be a Christian, but I think it's, it is the concept itself is at the center of the Christian faith, of course. So, you know, God, the father, the son, the Holy spirit, we have the person of Christ, um, his death on the cross, his resur- his physical bodily resurrection. So he dies in our place, suffering the penalty for our sin. He rises from the dead physically alive. And then salvation by faith that you trust, you repent and believe. Like these are the simple, simple basic things. So there's a God, Jesus died for you and rose again. And if you repent and believe. Um, what's interesting is not an essential of the Christian faith is, is your view of scripture. Um, I do think it's very important I don't think it's essential of the Christian faith. I do think the Holy Spirit naturally leads us to a love of the word of God. And that if you respect Jesus, then you're going to, you're going to, because you believe in Jesus, you're going to trust in scripture because he talks about, he talks about it as, as though it is God's word because it is. And so there's elements there that are true, but there's things that are not essential, like speaking in tongues or your view on tongues, um, your view on when the second coming is going to happen. Those types of things are not essential. Andrew G has a question. I've been listening to podcasts by Apologia about Word of Faith and Bethel and realized my church Grace Center is a direct copy of Bethel's model. I'm upset and don't know what to do. Any advice? Um, Andrew, so my recommendation would be, um, for what it's worth, man, just take me as a brother speaking to another brother who knows very little about your scenario, just a little bit of what you told me. 
my thought, Andrew, would be for you to first just be patient. Like you need to get wisdom and not react out of shock. Um, if you're seeing major issues in your own fellowship, first slow down, pray, don't overreact, just get wisdom. Don't forget the issues. Don't ignore them. Don't gloss them over, but just get some wisdom here. Try to understand your church, not just Bethel, because your church, your pastor, and the people in your fellowship aren't Bethel, even if they hold some of the same views. Understand your pastor, where they're coming from, and then maybe first try to be the one making the difference. This means graciously considering your own self first, that you don't fall into sin as you're trying to help bring others out of error, and then educate yourself so that you can be the one who goes and talks to them about it. If that fails, after you multiple times seek to bring correction and help in a positive and uh, especially in that community, because if people are like Bethel, they, they believe in this whole like honor culture thing. That's a really big deal to them that you speak to them in very like respectful and gracious and open terms. And you can do this to an extent to try to keep the door open to ministering to them. So I don't recommend just like browbeating them with, with where you think they're wrong. Um, it won't have as much of an effect and, and you want to help them. But if after repeated times, it just doesn't work and you can't help and you think that the errors are significant, then you can pray and consider um, leaving and how to leave and all that kind of horrible stuff. So God give you wisdom, Andrew. I uh, pray the Lord blesses you with great wisdom and insight, love and compassion for even people in error in your fellowship and skill in trying to help bring correction. So yeah. Lots of stuff, man. We, we want to strive to preserve the unity of the faith as much as we possibly can as Christians. So I hope that that helps. Um, for new believers, uh, I hope you got some of your questions answered today. And for those of you who didn't, I have tons of free teaching online, tons and tons of Bible study and verse by verse and other Q&A videos that you can check out on my YouTube channel or on BibleThinker.org. It's all totally free. And I just hope, hopefully, it's just a big blessing to you. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to respond really quick to Purple Pill Philosophy, who says I look like Matt Walsh. Uh, no, Matt Walsh looks a little bit like me. But but I knew me before I knew him, so I think I look like me. Um, at any rate, thank you guys so much. God give you uh, grace and wisdom as you're plowing through all the tough, like, you know, trigger society that we're in right now. And you're trying to be an honorable uh, servant of Christ to deal with different issues and where everyone's just like trying to draw lines and telling you to pick sides and all this kind of stuff. I just pray that we pick the side of Jesus Christ, which, which does mean that we do side with people on different topics, but it means that we will not side with them when they're asking us to sin, um, in their perspectives. So I hope that, I hope that that helps. God bless you guys. Uh, my next, uh, live stream. I have no idea when it will be. It's not going to be a regular weekly Tuesday live stream. I'm changing things up. I'm going to be just producing the videos as they're ready. And I know that that will reduce the amount of content coming out of the channel, but I think it's the direction I should go moving forward in, um, in making sure that I can produce good quality, helpful videos. And I have like 400 other videos for you to go watch that most of you haven't seen. And, uh, so if you, if you miss me, you can go back, check out the, check out the old stuff. So take care. Lord bless you.